If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 8. We're really looking at the last verse of chapter 7, verse 53, through 8, verse 11 in the Gospel of John. If you've looked at the insert, the insert in the bulletin of my outline, (laughs) you realize we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. What usually fits on just a single page on the inside of the bulletin, Stephanie had to turn into a front and back handout. I really struggled with this. I started out, I'm just going to deal with these bracket things today at the beginning of this passage. And what does that mean? But then yesterday, giving you a lecture on textual criticism just wasn't enough. I just couldn't be like a professor. I didn't give you a lesson this morning. And so we're going to deal with the sort of tedious uncomfortableness of those brackets and what they mean. And then we're going to come to terms with what the Lord is telling us through these verses that are there on our page. So let's start with looking at chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it was commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you go and from now on sin no more let's pray father you and you alone can relieve us from the great burdens that are placed on our heads and upon our shoulders and during this hour father as we have worshiped you in song acknowledging the cleansing power of your blood proclaiming the glory of your beauty and your majesty and your great love for us, we come and we sit at your feet to understand what all of this means. And Father, I pray that you would bring understanding through my lips, that you would not just give us an intelligent understanding of things, but that we would understand with our hearts and our souls the rich, rich truth that we so desperately need in our own hearts, souls, and minds this morning, Father. And I can only ask this because I know that through the power of the Spirit, you can create everything we've asked for. And so we do so. Lord, please give us what we've asked for. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have this whole subject, right, of just the passage itself and what does it mean and and how do we understand it and what is Jesus doing here and how is he handling this subject of this woman's adultery and what does he do with it and why does he do it? But before we can even get to that, we've got these things written on the page right above 
chapter 8 heading. And most of you see these. I mean, I'm assuming everybody's Bible has them. I mean, everybody's Bible has these, right? It's not like some Bibles have these and some Bibles don't have them. Every Bible has these brackets around verse 753, ending after verse 11. And then above it is this, at times, for some of us, confusing notation. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. What is that? What does that mean? Well, unfortunately, it's not going to be a quick answer. The subject is really around the, the discipline of textual criticism, meaning examining the original language documents that we have available to us and all the copies that were made over the centuries and trying to check where there's differences in these ancient documents and figure out what is the actual, real, authentic words written by the biblical author when they penned the original document itself, right? So the goal of the textual criticism discipline is to give us the most accurate Bible we possibly can have to produce Bibles that are exactly as the original book of the author wrote it. Now to understand, we need to sort of, the first thing to understand about this is that nobody has the original document. There is no original document of John's gospel, or of Matthew, or of Peter, or of Romans, they wrote the original one, right? John writes this. He writes it on a notebook of paper and then starts sharing it with other people. And as you can imagine, as many hands as would handle it and touch it over the years, it eventually falls apart. But between the moment he finishes writing the Gospel of John and it falls apart and disintegrates as paper does, people began making copies of it. And many of these copies are preserved in various forms, some of it pieces, some of it holes. And there's, in the case of the Gospel of John, literally thousands of copies. Some of them whole documents and some of them just pieces of it. And so the discipline of textual criticism says, all right, you know, through basically archaeological work, just random discovery and what we would call dumb luck, people have found these ancient copies and, you know, recognizing what they were and how valuable they were as copies from the 4th century, from the 1st century, from the 5th century, from the 12th century. They grab them and store them in a library in now specially designed rooms and atmospheric conditions to preserve this piece of paper for as long as possible. And people who are committed to this discipline of textual criticism, they go back and they start looking at all of these through every single one. It's tedious work. Now, the people who do it really love it. But for you and I, it would drive us crazy. It really would. And they're looking, and if there's anything that doesn't match exactly to the last document they looked at, they make a notation of it. Because through looking at all the copies, they can recreate the original document exactly the way it was written. Now, that shouldn't be hard for us to comprehend. How many of you have actually laid hands on and held in your hand the original Declaration of Independence? Nobody. Like, okay, if, if, if you aren't aware, nobody's allowed to touch it. Right? If you've ever been to the Smithsonian, you ain't can't even get within 10 feet of it. You literally can't get any closer than 10 or 15 feet away from the original Declaration of Independence, if that's actually the original. But what happened is right after they finished signing the document, copies were made and distributed everywhere. And even if the Smithsonian burned down today and the original Declaration of Independence was destroyed, we would still have every single word 
of the Declaration of Independence because there's so many copies. And if there was a particular copy that had a misspelling and we compared it with another one that didn't have a misspelling and we'd go, okay, wait a second, this isn't the same. You start comparing all the other copies and can figure out, okay, this is the only one with a misspelling. So, and it looks like a misspelled word. So it's a misspelled word in this particular copy of the Declaration of Independence. That's what happens in the discipline of textual criticism. They go through these, they find them, and they work through them to determine what was the original words written. So while understanding the meaning of the brackets may be due to us, these places have been known for centuries. It has been no surprise, I mean, for centuries, people have known that the earliest manuscripts don't contain this passage in the Gospel of John. And we know every place in the New Testament that contains a question about what the word or phrase is that the biblical author writes, has written rather. We know every single one. They're well cataloged. Nothing's a surprise. 99% of these differences that occur between the copies are just insignificant errors. A simple misspelled word by the copyist, which is easily recognized by scholars. The example I give is these are like the misspelled words in a text message we receive, right? Even though it is spelled wrong, we can tell what the word is supposed to be there. 99% of the differences in these ancient copies of the Bible are that. Less than 1% of these question marks are very significant issues, like this passage here in John with the brackets around it and the end of the Gospel of Mark. Was this something that John actually wrote? Was the ending of the Gospel of Mark actually something that Mark wrote? Or is that everything that he wrote? Or is that just pieces of what he wrote? Those are the questions. Those are the only two significant issues anywhere in Scripture. But here's the good news. Even if it's determined that those were not written by the original author, and therefore we shouldn't have them there, even if we remove them from our Bibles, it has no impact on any important doctrine or teaching. Anything that's important from the ending of Mark or from this passage in John is already easily stated and supported from other places in the New Testament. For example, when Jesus says to the man who is standing around this woman in this passage, he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, right? Isn't that just another way of Jesus stating what he told us in Matthew? First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. So even if we take this passage out of our Bible, we don't lose that importance of if you're going to judge somebody, if you're going to determine whether they are sinning against God and deserve some kind of disciplinary action, you better be sure you're not doing the same thing. At the very least, don't be guilty of that same sinful act or attitude. We don't even need this passage. It's there in Matthew chapter 7. So, because of what I've just explained to you, that even these very small places, these only two places that it really makes a difference, we lose nothing important if we take them out. So because of that, every Christian can have great confidence in the authenticity and accuracy of their Bibles. No one should doubt that they can trust their Bibles as God's Word. There's no reason to doubt. Okay, the first time I crossed this subject and had to deal with it, my first year in seminary, my first semester of seminary, I had a crisis of faith. I really freaked out. Amy will tell you. She even, when I started put, working on this sermon and saying, hey, I got to deal with these brackets, she was like, oh, you mean that thing where you really freaked out? Yes. I didn't even have to remind her of it. Right? That's how big of a deal it was for me. Because I was like, you know, God's word is God's word. It's an errand. It's inspired. It's the authoritative word for us. It absolutely is that. 
I held to it before I heard about textual criticism. I held to it while trying to learn and understand textual criticism. And I hold to it today. This is his inspired and errant authoritative word. And in the original documents, the original writing of it, it is inspired and inerrant. The copies had mistakes. Human beings making copies of them made mistakes. But everything that John wrote with his own hand was inspired by God. That's why the work of textual criticism is so important. We really need to know exactly what John wrote, what Paul wrote, what Peter wrote, what Isaiah wrote, because that's the inspired word of God. And I can tell you, after spending years studying this, you can have complete confidence in the accuracy of our Bibles. Now, we have more to say about these brackets, but I just want to reinforce how much effort I've put into making sure about what I'm trying to tell you. When we were at seminary in Louisville at Southern, you know, I'm in my 40s, so I'm always the oldest guy in the room, right? And we got all these 20-something young kids in there. Half the time, they thought I was the professor, when we would go like the first day of class, you show up, they think I'm the professor. That's how big of an age difference there was. And we went to a small little church, kind of like this, there in Louisville. And then one day this young couple comes in. He's in his 20s. She's in her young 20s. He's a recent graduate from a Bible college. And he's from Middle Tennessee, right? Elijah. Elijah never was a snake handler, but he knew people who were. Right. I mean, he's from middle Tennessee. Right. And I'm not talking like Memphis, middle Tennessee, or I'm talking like mountains, middle Tennessee. Right. I mean, I'm not joking. He really knew snake handlers. He came to us from a church. It was an all King James version church. It was like we use the King James because that's what Paul wrote. Right. That kind of an attitude. Some of you will get that later. Paul couldn't have possibly written the King James version himself. And so we become friends. I have, I think it's an overstatement to say that I was like a mentor to Elijah. That's a gross overstatement because he was just way smarter than I am. His intellectual capabilities beyond myself. He had a background and a degree in chemistry. So we get to know him. And then one day, like if you knew Elijah the way I knew him, this would shock you, right? Elijah says, you know, I think I want to get into the textual criticism. What? Really? Okay. I mean, a young kid from Middle Tennessee that has friends who are snake handlers is not the kind of guy you would expect to become a Greek scholar and work on the New Testament. But okay. And so he continues down that road and God just keeps opening doors. He graduates from Southern and goes over to Edinburgh, Scotland, to the University of Edinburgh to get a Ph.D., contextual criticism and he does in fact for his phd dissertation he literally had to get on a train and go to france to a library i think it was in paris that had this one ancient piece of a manuscript i've forgotten which book it was and it was like the size of a postage stamp and it took him six months to get permission to go look at this document that's the size of a postage stamp. And Elijah was getting his PhD from a guy who's like one of the guys who could just pick up the phone and say, hey, we need to come look at this document. And they'll be like, oh, yes, absolutely. And it still took him six months to get approval to go there. And he goes and he finally gets to it. And, and he gets, he's literally, it's like, it's almost like going into an NSA room. Like the room has got, you can't take your phone. You can't take anything that would be an electronic image making device. You can only touch it in these certain ways. You have to wear these special gloves. If you get up to go to the bathroom, you just don't get up and leave. You call one of the curators over 
and they personally take possession of it while you get up and go to the bathroom and come back. I mean, it's like trying to look at a top secret document in an NSA safe room. And it's just this ancient piece of Greek written on a piece of paper. And that was his job. That was what he had to do for his dissertation research. And then Elijah and I got to spend about two hours in a video call with him back in March. Because they just come back from Scotland. and He's now, I, I'd hoped that I could bring him in to talk with you guys, but he's moving from Middle Tennessee back or down to New Orleans to be on staff and faculty at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, where he's going to create a new translation of the New Testament that will not be copyrighted. Yes, we'll just leave it there. It has a very specific use, so I'll just say we're going to leave it at he's going to be translating the New Testament from the original Greek into a new translation, new English translation that can be used without it being copyrighted under a special project where the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary is overseeing that. And so Elijah and I got to spend two hours together on a video call. And this was, I'm almost quoting you verbatim what Elijah told me, right? I've, I've laid out why you should believe what he says. And he, and he said it, what he said with tone, his inflection, his facial expressions, his hand movements while we were on the field call together is every Christian can have great confidence in their authenticity and accuracy of their Bibles. No one should doubt that they can trust their Bibles as God's word. Okay. Somebody like Elijah says that he's done the work. He knows the truth. If there's a secret, he knows the secret because he's in that group. So we don't need to be concerned about this. And I'm hoping that none of you go through that crisis of faith that I experienced the first time I heard that this passage of John chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11 might not belong in our Bible. So, what about this particular passage, right? Kind of dealt with the whole subject. What about this passage? What about these brackets at verse 53? Well, the oldest manuscripts do not have these verses. And many of the oldest to believe they were in error is just almost impossible. The very first time this shows up is in the 5th century in a copy of the Gospel of John. Now, these manuscripts that do have this particular passage place it in five different places. Most of them place it here, which is why it's in our Bibles at this location. Others put it after verse 36 in John chapter 7. Some put it after verse 44 in John chapter 7. And then others have it at the very end of the Gospel of John. And then there is a very small number of these ancient copies that actually put it in Luke at the end of chapter 21, verse 38. So the manuscript evidence has it all over the place. And then when you start looking at the actual passage itself, the vocabulary does not match John's language. The word scribes that he uses here in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. This is the only time the word scribes shows up in the Gospel of John. He never, ever uses it anywhere else. And then along with the word scribes, we have 13 other words that are in this passage that are never used anywhere else in his gospel by John. And to me, even when we read this passage in English, it just doesn't sound as John writes. Look, I don't pretend I'm some scholar or expert on the gospel of John, but I've spent more time with the gospel of John in the past six months, seven months, than I ever have in my life. And I actually start to feel like I know the way John writes and the way John thinks at least I'm starting to see it to the place I can feel like I can understand him. And when I read this, it just doesn't sound like John. It sounds like somebody else. The other element about this that brings it into question is it interrupts the Feast of Tabernacles narrative. Here we are. If you remember from last week, we're at the end in chapter 52. 
It's the very last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Then this event occurs, which says everybody leaves and goes back to their houses. And then we come back in verse 12 and we pick back up with the Feast of Tabernacles narrative again. It's like, wait, how did, wait, how did we go from the last day of the feast to some other day and then back to the last day of the feast? The other part about this particular narrative or this particular passage with the woman called in adultery is it's very similar to a lot of what we call apocryphal writings from the first century. Writings that were well known to the early church and read by many, but rejected as actual scriptures. Things like the Gospel of Hebrews. There's actually a book called the Gospel of Hebrews, but it's not like a gospel like we know as the four gospels. It's different. It's not like that at all. And this passage sounds a lot like the things that are written in those books, but have been rejected as actual scripture, but well known from the very early days of the early church, much like the apocrypher that you will see in some Bibles or in specifically the Catholic Bibles, writings that were well known by the Jews at the time of Christ, many of them well loved and read on a regular basis, but all the Jews, scholars and rabbis and Pharisees rejected the apocryphal books as actual Old Testament scripture. In the same way, many of these early first century writings about Jesus are well loved by the early church, but they acknowledge them as not being actual scripture. So where did this particular passage come from if John didn't write it? Well, while we can't be absolutely sure, it's almost guaranteed that it was an actual event in the life of Jesus and his ministry, but not anything that John actually wrote or any of the other biblical authors. We can see that not everything Jesus did was recorded by the Gospels. By John's last statement here in the Gospel of John itself, John chapter 21, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John himself acknowledges that Jesus did a whole bunch more than any of the other gospels, including his, had written about. And remember, John was the last one and his was written 30 years after the last one, which was probably Luke. And so he knows exactly what's written in Mark, in Matthew, and Luke before he starts writing his gospel, the Gospel of John. And he can say with confidence, we have these four gospels of the life of Jesus, and not even they contain everything that he did. So it's no surprise that we would have first century writings from other persons who would record events that Jesus had done or things he had said which weren't actually in the real Gospels. So it's not hard to perceive and believe that this event itself was a very real event. This is not mythology. Somebody just didn't make up this woman caught in adultery at the temple. I'm convinced that it actually happened. So, where, you know, at some point, it's like, unfortunately, you have to make a decision, right? You just can't, like, be in limbo and. Say, well, I'm not sure. You can only do that for so long. At some point, you have to make a choice. And of course, for me, that was today, right? I've tried to, have, to figure this out for weeks. Been working on this, obviously, for months because Elijah and I had our video call back in March. So I've concluded that it is an inauthentic passage as far as something that John himself wrote with his own hand. And for my part... I would ignore it and advocate for its removal from our Bibles. And while the biblical scholar and originalist in me would do so, pastorally, however, I cannot just ignore this. So what do we do with this passage? Well, I think we have to treat it exactly as the evidence suggests, that John did not write this in his gospel, so it is not authoritative scripture. This passage is not authoritative scripture. It was an actual event that occurred, so there is value in examining it and taking basic principles from it, but we cannot build any kind of doctrine or important teaching upon it. Okay, do you understand that? We can't take this and say, we stand on this as solid rock, because it's not. 
but because it's a real event that actually occurred in Jesus's ministry and life, we can look at it and gain some value from it and some basic principles from it as well. So that's what we're going to do now. We're just going to look at this and try to gain some basic principles from it. First, what happens here is these disingenuous leading officials set a trap for Jesus. I mean, this is clearly a trap to corner Jesus into either nullifying God's law by not calling for her stoning, which gets Jesus in trouble with all the people because he's not keeping the law, or to run afoul of the Roman law that forbade subjects from executing persons. The Jews couldn't just execute somebody because they broke Mosaic law that required stoning. They had to get the Romans permission to do it because they were an occupied country. So if Jesus says, um, yeah, sure, she's committed adultery. Yeah, the law says she has to stone her. Go ahead, throw your stones. If he does that, he's going to be getting in trouble with Rome for inciting the killing of another person, which they call rioting. And if you want to know how serious the Romans took rioting, you just ask Tom. He'll let you know exactly how serious they took it and how they reacted and responded to it. And he's going to be in trouble with the Roman law. So there, it's one of these traps. It's like so many of the traps we see in the Bible for Jesus where they try to catch him so they can either push him into a corner where he either has to make this choice of either I anger the people by them saying I'm not keeping the law or I get in trouble with the Roman officials and get thrown in jail or put to death by them. That's what they're trying to do here. It's a trap. It has nothing to do with actually keeping God's law. It is an illegitimate case. And one of the reasons we can see this is because only the woman is brought in. She's the only person brought in. In case you might have forgotten, it takes two people to commit adultery. Right? It takes two. They only brought one. Okay, here's the woman. You say you caught her in the act of adultery. Where's the guy? I mean, she couldn't be caught in the act without him there with her. Where is he? The man's absence is not only suspect, but it shows that the devaluation of the woman by just seeking only her death and not the man's. She's just a woman. So what if we put her to death? So what if she dies so that we can get this Jesus character off our backs? She's just a woman. So what? Just think about that for a moment. They had so far gone down the hole that they didn't even care about valuing her the way God values her. She's just a tool to get what we want. When we recognize that, the scribes and Pharisees were using her just as much as the man having sex with her. They may not have had sex with her, but they were just using her all the same. Then we come to Jesus' response to all this. Well, before I get to the response, that should serve as a warning to us. Don't get so committed to your agenda that you're willing to devalue the human beings God created and put infinite value on by shedding his blood for their salvation. If Jesus thinks somebody's so worth it and so valuable that he's built his blood for them, I think we have to as well. Then verses 7 through 9, Jesus' answer it was understood in Mosaic law, it's understood that if you accuse someone of breaking the law and passing judgment on that person, you cannot be guilty of the same offense themselves. So when Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone, he is at the very least saying, those of you who aren't committing adultery are able to cast the stone. At the very least, don't be guilty, don't be an adulterer yourself if you're going to throw the stones at this woman. But yet there was more to it. It's well understood by many Talmud and rabbinical writings that 
You cannot be guilty of the sin you're accusing someone of. It's not just that level of hypocrisy. You need to be a righteous person as well. It's more than just not being guilty of adultery here. You need to be a righteous person. Oh, that stings because there was very little righteousness in their self-righteousness. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6 and 7, there has to be two or three witnesses. Just one single witness is insufficient for capital punishment. And here's the kicker. The very law they're saying Jesus needs to uphold required the witnesses to be the first ones to throw the stone. It's just not enough that Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and stone her. The persons who actually witnessed her committing adultery have to be the first ones to throw the stone. You want to do this? You're first. You got to be first to throw a stone because you saw it happen. And if I'm going to throw a stone, I'm basing it upon your testimony that this is real. So you got to show me you really mean this by throwing the first stone. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 and 7. Now, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one is who dies shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The witnesses had to throw the first stone. So when Jesus says he who is without sin... He's reminding them, A, are you a righteous person worthy of making a judgment? And B, which one of you saw it? Okay, you throw the stone first. Jesus' answer turns the tables on his accusers. He places the responsibility of throwing the first stone on those who keep the law, and that is the actual witness themselves. They then become the ones who get in trouble with Rome because they were taking it upon themselves as the witnesses, the responsibility of throwing the stones. And as it's recorded, they each started walking away. It says from the oldest to the first, I'm assuming that wisdom from the age of experience led them to the recognition that they better just not do this. But then it would be okay if he just stops there. But Jesus goes further. Isn't that the problem with Jesus? He never just stops where it's convenient for him to stop. He keeps going further and further. He has this interaction with the woman afterward. He tells her, what, no one's condemning you? Well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Wait, did Jesus just whiff on adultery here? Did he just like whitewash it, wave it off as nothing? No, of course not. His statement to her to go and sin no more is a clear command to stop what she was doing and to live according to God's word. Why did Jesus not enact some punishment? Why did he not do something to punish this woman who had broken the law? Even though the male counterpart wasn't there, She's still responsible and guilty for her part of the action. Now we can speculate on the possibilities. She had been humiliated and shamed all by herself because the man was not brought in with her. We could speculate Jesus saw that they were just using her. We could speculate that, well, Jesus knows that she still got to go out and deal with the consequences of this, like dealing with her spouse or her father afterwards. Yet, we can get a clue from Jesus' words as well as Scripture on why Jesus did not punish this woman. Jesus is in the business of redeeming, not condemning. Our Savior, His business is the business of redemption, not condemnation. His purpose, the reason He was there was to redeem his people. This moment was a word picture for all Jesus is doing then and now. 
We can look at Hosea for evidence to prove my point. I'm not relying on just this to show that Jesus is a redeemer. I'm relying on actual, real, solid scripture. And the Lord said to me, Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and an lecheth of barley. That's a lot of money. Okay, just I'll just throw that in there real quick. We won't go through the details, but that was a lot of money. Hosea paid through the nose to buy Gomer back from her pimp. He went to her pimp and bought her back and paid through the nose for it. And I said to her, Hosea says to Gomer, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Meaning they just won't lose the temple. They just won't lose Judaism. They'll lose their idolatry too as a result of their sins and their actions. Then afterwards, after this period of exile, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. That's Hosea chapter 3. So we can see that Jesus is out to redeem the unfaithful wife. This woman is an image of Israel in that moment, even of the men who brought her to Jesus. They were unfaithful spouses that needed to be redeemed from their pimp. And Jesus was there to redeem them as well as her. They are chasing after other gods just as much as the idolaters in Hosea's day. And Jesus is calling Israel back to its true love and its spouse, the Lord God of heaven and earth, just like Hosea. But Jesus isn't just out to redeem those people. He's out to redeem us. Us, the church. The image of Jesus in this woman is more than just Israel in that moment. It's also us today. Jesus is still redeeming the unfaithful spouse. The church as a collective unit has forsaken its spouse for unsatisfying and uncaring lovers. Like, what are you talking about, Brian? I'm talking about the approval of the culture. We're going to embrace anything the culture says we should embrace because we want them to like us. But wait a second. God said that's not good and we're not supposed to encourage that. So whose favor do we want most? Who do we choose as our lover? The culture and the world's approval, comfort, and prosperity are just to name a few. And Jesus is still seeking to redeem his bride from our adultery for the culture's love. Oh, by the way, a love that's as unsatisfying and unfulfilling as the adulteries. Now, if that was all Jesus was doing, that'd be okay. But he goes further. Jesus is doing more than trying to redeem his church and redeem his bride, the church. Because he can't redeem the church as a unit without redeeming us individually. It's more than the collective church that has been unfaithful spouse. We have individually. Either you are now or have been unfaithful to Christ. And if there's a certain sort of resistance to that statement, I would just not have to press too hard into any of your actions and attitudes this week to make the case that in some form or fashion, you and I were unfaithful once or twice this week. I don't like it any more than you do. I don't like that. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. But we are. 
And Jesus is still redeeming his church. He paid through the nose to redeem us from our pimps. This is really, really, really important. Okay? I want you to grasp this. I mean, if you hear nothing else I've said today, I want you to hear this. Okay? The most important thing is the difference between a mature disciple of Christ and an immature disciple of Christ is not that the mature does not commit a spiritual adultery. I certainly count myself among those who are more mature than most. And I can't say that I'm pure as wind-driven snow. No. Those who are mature in Christ still commit pure spiritual adultery. The difference between the mature believer and the immature believer is the shortness of the cycle. The mature believer runs through the cycle faster than the immature person. The mature Christian falls into spiritual adultery, comes to their senses, turns back, confesses it to Jesus, and is redeemed into the intimacy with Christ, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, quicker than the immature believer does. That's the difference. The cycle takes minutes or hours for the mature believer, whereas for the immature believer, it takes days or weeks. That's the only difference, is how fast you roll through the cycle and get back to Jesus. Outside of that, there ain't no difference between us. So what? Okay, what do we do with all this? Okay, I don't know who, because the Lord put this in my head and heart yesterday morning, so I don't know who, but somebody needs to hear this. Jesus doesn't condemn you, so don't condemn yourself. Jesus does not condemn you, so do not condemn yourself. If Jesus says you are clean, then you are clean. You are clean, and you are to act and believe and act as a person who is clean. And if you believe and act otherwise, is to believe and act on a lie. If you are not actually clean, then come clean today. The redeeming, forgiving love of Jesus has not expired. And the blood of Christ still washes all sinners and all sins white as snow. You can be free today. Just receive it. Receive your redemption for you have been made clean by Jesus. Secondly, start to recognize some of these patterns in your life. With a little self-examination, you will see the signs you are off base and off track with Jesus. Signs that you need to start recognizing as warning signs. When you can say things as a pattern of behavior, when I feel this attitude or this sense of something, when I begin to feel this, it's an indicator I'm off track with Christ. Okay, I mean, like I've already bared my soul already today, so I might as well say this too. When I feel rejection, I know it is a sign that I'm off track with Christ. Just like in human marriages, when there's a, unfaithfulness and adultery no human marriage is restored from that spouse's committing of adultery without outside help and neither is our union with christ restored without some outside help ask for help ask for help jesus doesn't expect you to be restored to him without asking a fellow friend and believer for help. Yes, you can do it once you've gotten experience at doing it. But nobody just knows how to do it intuitively. It takes someone helping us understand how to get there. And you know, 
especially those of you who have been going through the women's study of how people change, you know there are people in this room ready to help. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your redeeming love. The way it just pours over us, washing away our sins. And if you just washed away our sins, that would be enough, Lord. But you do more. You go further. You just don't wash away our sins. You replace it with the warm, loving embrace of intimacy with you. And Father, I pray that every barrier to our intimacy, individually as persons and spiritually as a church, would be broken down and washed away by the cleansing fount of your blood and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, so that we may live in fellowship and intimacy with you and each other in joy. In Jesus' name, amen.